Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's let, let's get into it. Welcome, everybody. We are we are super excited um, and lucky to have uh, have Aston Motes here. Uh, Aston is a is a on deck fellow in, in a previous cohort. Um, he is a entrepreneur, uh, angel investor. He was one of the first advisors, I would say, or, or first people that I went to when when I was building my company, Wrapped FM, and we were going through some some tough moments. A- Aston was always there, and so I've I've been lucky to to know him for a lo- for a long time now. He was the First employee at Dropbox, uh, also uh, started his own company, also spent some time at United Masters. Uh, maybe just by, by way of introduction, Aston, why don't you talk about, we're going to go through sort of various elements of your journey because a lot of people here, as, as you know, are sort of in between things or just starting something out. And, you know, maybe some of them are evaluating sort of first employee or founding team versus starting a company. Why don't we just talk about your Dropbox story uh, first? Uh, yeah, totally. How did that come about? Did you know right away that, that this was where you wanted to spend time what was your sort of, uh, or spend the next few years of your life, what was your sort of your calculus in terms of how, how you made that, that decision? Yeah. So in order to really talk about Dropbox, I have to go back a little bit and talk about MIT, which is a really formational place for me in my career. And in particular, where MIT was really valuable is in the network. Like, I mean, the classes were great too and hard, but uh, the people I met there were really, really critical to my, like my entire career. And one of the people I met is this uh, gentleman by the name of Arash. And Arash now, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, is is co-founder of Dropbox. But Arash then was like this kid who's a year behind me, who I thought was really smart, who I had worked on projects with, and who I think shared a lot of my aspirations around uh, building a great business someday as like a startup founder. And so, you know, when it when it came to kind of thinking about like stuff I wanted to do, he was extremely, he's basically the one of the only two people that I was considering working with post-college on like a startup or something. And so I, I'll skip over a little bit of the nitty gritty here because I don't know how interesting it is, but Arash and I and this other guy, Mackinay, um, tried to do Y Combinator together, got rejected and ended up in this place where it's like, well, we have other stuff to do in life. It's cool. We'll go our separate ways, but I'm sure one day we'll work together again. And um, that rejection was like probably in early 2007. So like January would be my guess um, for that summer, for that summer YC class. And between that rejection and the start of YC, Arash ended up in YC by joining this other company which is Dropbox, but at the time just felt like another company that would be uh, able to go through the program in a way that we weren't when we applied. And so um, the context in the early days of Dropbox for me was always about like that rejection and this being like the new, the new vehicle, the new chance to kind of work with Arash. And I think, you know, the next part of the story you would expect is, so Arash asked me to be first employee and I was like, yes, man, let's do it. And actually the answer was no. Uh, I have a job. I'm cool <laughs> with it. Like everything's good. I'm in New York City, which is awesome. It's way better than San Francisco. This company I'm at already has millions of users. It was OkCupid <laughs> at the time, which you know precursor to kind of Tinder and all that stuff. So, like, why would I go take this job with people who don't have funding, who can't pay me, 
who are working on an idea that yes, makes sense to me, but didn't feel like so much more compelling than like other things in the world. I see why you would do it because you get to be co-founder, but like, why would I do it? And so I spent probably once they started like looking for a co-founder and like seriously, um, and I was very close to Rosh at the time and spent a lot of time trying to help him with the company. I was basically like helping them recruit. So I was helping them think about who might be great first employees. Um, there was one person in particular who I pushed super hard for them to take. I thought, you know, perfect fit, entrepreneurial guy, great Python programmer in Dropbox was Python shop. And I was like, if you guys get this guy, you'll be all set. Like this company will work if you get this guy. And they totally failed to close him. He was very skeptical of the idea, just basically said no. And so I was, it wasn't so much that like uh, by the end of that process, I was like, oh, this could be me. By the end of the process, I had been selling myself uh, by trying to sell this other person. And so it went a little bit longer. They eventually like raised a little bit of money, which I think helped me make the decision that I, I could make the jump. But basically by the time they asked again, like for real, they were like, hey, we need someone. Can you be that someone? That time I was like, yeah, definitely. I could get into a little bit of, of how they sold me, but it basically took this whole year of kind of being in a, in, a, in a frame of, hey, that's not the thing I want to actually, this is like definitely the thing I really, really want to do. Then moved to San Francisco kind of in, in two weeks, I think I w- it was between like the end of the recruitment trip and when I was like on my way uh, oh. and, uh, and the story kicked off from there. Yeah, there's a few jumping points from there. First, I want to jump off and say, ask, what framework would you recommend uh, people think about as to whether, you know, starting their own company or joining a founding team as first employee? Like, what are the important things to, to think about and, and what to prioritize? Yeah, I mean, I think that comes up all the time. There's a lot of different ways to think about it, but I have a very particular one, which has guided me really, really well throughout my whole career. So at that time, I started with the presumption that I was a good enough person to be a founder and then got this rejection that said, oh, maybe not. And so it seemed very natural to me then to want to join something to get experience. And I think experience is like, it's a word that could mean a lot of things, but now I I have refined it to a different word, which is like much more important to me, which is like learning. So looking back, there were specific things that I was not sure about my ability to do. One of which was to find a a marketable business idea. Like we we never really had the right idea to, to work as a team. Um, but things like talking to investors, building uh, early customer base, trying to make decisions about hiring and, and recruiting. And these are things that if I had been thrown into the deep end, I'm sure I would have figured it out and I would have been okay. But I realized in Dropbox, this opportunity to learn these things without any risk to my own like personal reputation. Like the worst thing that would happen is, hey, you worked on this like company that was seemed like an okay idea, like investors thought so. And now you have to go work on something else. And I was like, definitely down to take that type of a career risk. Um, But what I knew I was going to get on the other side, regardless of whether Dropbox worked or not, was I was going to see up close and personal what it was like to start a company. And then I would be able to go do my own afterwards. And so I saw being first employee as like a perfect training ground for whatever was going to come next with with a lot of like kind of optionality built into it that if Dropbox actually rent went really well, I would like stick around for in years. Actually, my guess was two. If I stuck around for two years, it's like, that's the, that's as far as I can think into this company. Um, but if it didn't work, like I said, I could go elsewhere. And with that experience, I would, I would kind of know a lot. So 
I was optimizing towards learning and I knew that the type of learning I needed was the type of learning that would actually work better as a first employee than as a person on the ground, because I wasn't so interested in, in learning the nitty gritty of like, here's how you come up with an idea and like the market beats you over the head with how much it sucks. Like yeah. I wasn't even, I wasn't even at that part of my entrepreneurial journey. I was just at like, what does it look like to run a company? What does it look like to have more than like a couple of people coding on a thing? You know, and I, and I think Drew in particular, but Drew and Arash did a really good job of selling me on what the opportunity was for me to grow professionally. And there were other things that they mixed in there too, which I thought were pretty cool. So one of them was that I was going to own the web, which I ended up doing the web and the API. Um, and another was that I was going to set culture, which is something I hadn't even heard of before Dropbox mentioned it to me, but now is actually a really important thing for me in every organization I go to. I think a lot about what do I bring to the culture? How do I shape this company to be the type of company I don't want to work at? And if you go back and ask a lot of people who are relatively early at Dropbox, they will say, like, I actually, there's a lot of me, Aston, in, you know, what Dropbox was, for better or for worse. Um, and that's something that even as a founder, you get to do, but maybe can't be so intentional about. But the first employee, you can really, like, because it's not so much your job to be someone's boss, you can you can kind of mix in their culture in a really interesting way. Yeah. Let's go on, on that tangent for, for a little bit. Share more about how you approached you know, uh, culture at Dropbox or the frameworks that you've learned or sort of the, the different philosophies or how you think about it, how our mental models. Yeah. I mean, I think like one of the things that's always been on my mind, um, is diversity. And, uh, I will actually point out in Dropbox, I was not as successful at diversity, uh, kind of pushing for diversity as I would have liked, but I thought we did a really good job in the early days of as far as we could and with our limited ability to recruit to push for like different types of people. And we ended up with you know, so from a racial perspective, we had like myself, so a black person, Drew is like a white guy from Northeast. Arash is like a Persian guy, first generation who is from Kansas. And we have like Hispanic guy from Florida, an Asian guy from like Chicagoland. And we like everything you could think of in terms of diversity on a, on a racial axis, we kind of hit in the very early days. And we did in like kind of an intentional way in that we were like, we were not looking for like the same person. We were like looking around our networks for people who were similar enough to us that they understood the problem space, but different in that they would be really, really interesting person to have on the team. They would like push back against us. So like having uh, this Indian guy who was raised in like upstate New York versus the Jewish guy who was raised in the city of New York. And there's like a tension there. And like, there's a really good tension for kind of product development and thinking about how you develop. But if you guys notice, I said guy after every one of those descriptors, and we did not hire a woman for a really long time at Dropbox. It took, I think, I think we had like 50 people at the company, something like that, maybe like 20 engineers, somewhere around that before we really like hired a woman on the team. Wasn't for lack of trying, but it was for lack of um, succeeding at some cultural change. And one of the really big things was just like, folks were, to be totally honest, very comfortable with the frat type five, with like this thing that everybody at the company's, you know, uh, bro, like that, that word was used in a positive way at points. You know what I mean? And I think I pushed back against that myself, it, especially in our hiring process. We had certain situations where we're like, hey, this person actually did really, really well, but I think they're like a product person. And then on the other side, I'm like, this person did better than all of our engineering candidates on this, on this problem. And they want to be an engineer at Dropbox. So like, like what's the disconnect? And I think 
in my maturity now, I see how our lack of process and our lack of uh, intentionality around some of those decisions led us down this path of like lack of diversity. And it's something that I look out for in my new job. Um, so I'm an interim executive director at Dev Color now, and we're nonprofit focused on black software engineers. And so we're always on the lookout for systematic ways that black folks are not ending up in organizations. And we also, you know, also look out for women and our org has fewer women than I'd like, but lots more than the industry does. And, and these are the things that I've kind of seen over time, which is like, if you, if you started from the beginning and said who you want to hire based on like credentials, or maybe credentials is not the right word, based on attributes, you would kind of get different people than if you go through this process of, eh, we'll pick whoever we like. It'll be the best person, good cultural fit, whatever. And that's how you end up, to be totally honest, with a bunch of dudes, even if you have good intentions about trying to get other types of diversity. Um, and I think that's something that I've definitely carried with me. Totally. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's helpful. I want to go back to uh, what you were talking about, how they sold you. Uh, how Arash and, and Drew sold you and how, you know, people here can sell entrepreneurial talent to join them in, in their first employee. What, uh, what advice might you give them or what, what is particularly helpful? So I think I already shared kind of some of the things they were pointing out about the opportunity, about my ability to learn, about my ability to own a substantial chunk of the org and my ability to kind of have influence in certain ways. And I think those are really good things to highlight. One of the things they did that I didn't mention yet is they really highlighted growth and I totally ignored all of it. I thought it was BS. She was like, hey, we're growing super fast. We're growing faster than YouTube was at this time. Like, if we stay on this track, we're going to be a billion-dollar company. I'm like, there's no way this will ever be a billion-dollar company. I'll just get rid of all of these comments completely out of hand, and I'll think about this business from a perspective of how I like the product, how I like the team. Um, but I do think for, you know, it's worthwhile to have good metrics and to share those with candidates. And if you have less cynical candidates, they'll jump on board with that. There's one tactic that Drew and Arash did that I thought was really great. And depending on like kind of the type of team you're building, but the type of teams I really love to build, which are um, around people who are kind of go-getters and curious and really love to like dig in on stuff is uh, you can nerd snipe folks. So this term nerd snipe is basically where you give someone a problem that at first blush is like pretty superficial, but if they think about it for like a half second more, they're like, oh, that's really interesting. And then you come back like a week later and they've solved it. And Dropbox nerd sniped me like a couple times where Arash would hit me up with just some weird, you know, he's like, hey, we're having this thing where like 97% of the time Internet Explorer downloads files correctly, but sometimes it doesn't. Like, what's going on? And he asked it in this like casual sense of like, do you have any ideas right now? And then, of course, I go off on like an hours long search that night to try to solve it. Turns out there's some header that they weren't sending that they should have been sending. And I told Arash, and he's like, oh, thanks, dude. But <laughs> like that sort of a thing actually is, is super effective, I found, as a recruitment tactic. To It's a way for you to see if people like really engage your problem space. It's a way for you to see if they are the type of people to just work off hours and figure stuff out, even if it's not an area that's going to – like no one gave me a pat on the back for it, right? Like I don't get any credit for fixing that that bug. I don't even work at the company. But yeah, we used that tactic a few times. In fact, the person who came on to build our Linux client was building it two months before uh, we gave him an official offer, which is insane to think about like a person building like a, it was the first piece of open source software Dropbox had. And he's just like working on it. Yeah. So I think that's actually a really, really good way to 
simultaneously like recruit and you know you get a little cheap workout i wouldn't i would make the nerd snipes too substantial it starts to feel a little bit exploitative but um giving people a little piece of your problem to chew on and see if they like can can digest it in a nice way is fun yeah one thing i'd add to that that was a good good idea is um and this is for more for people who've like sort of set who who you've expressed interest to recruit and they still want to work on their own thing or you know they're they're not ready at this time is basically just to like sort of not over pressure them too much. They, hey, it's totally fine. I, regardless, I just want to like support you in anything you want to do. Totally. And so if you ever want to jam on on any ideas, like you know, I'm your first call at any time. And then at some point, they might be like, "Fuck this! I, I just want to talk yeah. to somebody." And you're the person that they talk to, and they're ready yeah. to give up or ready to you know to join. Totally. We we had a number of candidates we closed that way, including the so the first person to come after me, I was certain we wouldn't get him because he was in his graduate program at MIT doing really well. He had a long-term girlfriend in Boston who we knew we could not steal him from. In <laughs> fact, we had a recruiting dinner with her there. And she's basically like, this is not a recruiting dinner. Like, Shut it down. And uh, two months, he's like, hey, you guys still hiring? And we're like, yeah. He's like, okay, I'm coming out. And I, I think like what surprised me there and what I learned really is like how long careers are, right? And how long... Yeah people can be thinking about your opportunity. We had other candidates who took us like four years to close. Totally. And you just keep those seeds there. Um, it's definitely a good tactic. Yeah. You never know. And sometimes you just got to ruin relationships. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed by your dedication. I'm, I'm joking. The um, other thing I would say is a, going back to sort of the first employee, I, I think definitely uh, learning is, is a good sell, but also, you know, it's in first employees often, and I was first employee effectively at Product Hunt, um, get sort of riled up around sort of, it might be like 20 to one or 50 to one, you know, difference in ownership. But equity. Some, yeah, 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 exactly. In equity. But sometimes it actually is like a better risk reward, you know, ratio if, if they've proven something. And so like I was working on this rap video company, as, as you know, and as some other people know that, you know, had died and Ryan Hoover at Product Hunt was working on something that actually had legs to it. Um, and it's, it's just rare that things actually get, Get, get legs to it. it. It had gotten into Y Combinator. It raised some money. And so it might have been, you know, 20x or even 50x, perhaps more de-risk than something that I would just start from 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 scratch. It's super hard to dial in risk reward too, because you never really know if something's going to work or not. Yeah. So, I mean, my advice in general around the early equity is like, I mean, negotiate, try to maximize. But like, if you're really trying to measure yourself up against the founders on the, on the equity piece as a first employee, probably not the right opportunity. Yeah, no, yeah, totally. Uh, and you're just going to be better that you're not the founder and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I think in addition to thinking that it could be big, I, I thought that at the very least, in addition to learning, I would just build this incredible network. And totally. you know, some companies sort of enable, enable these sort of like extra benefits um, just from, from, from being a part of them. I would say yeah. just a generalization of that, first employees in particular should be looking at non-equity, non-cash compensation. All the other ways that you can be better off, but those two things are like really hard for you to like dial in on because it's so early, so risky. And yeah. so, yeah, you got a huge network. I actually got a really great network too. Totally. And that Dropbox was, in a, like I kind of mentioned, in that summer 07 class of YC. And those are great people. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I think even if, and then and Dropbox is one of the best mafias you know th- there is in some sense. I, I think if you'd be still excited to to join this company, even assuming the equity goes down to zero, then it's like almost like a no brain no brainer. Yeah, yeah, so. it's easy win. It's easy win. And I think as a if you are on the flip side of that, if you're like a founder recruiting for um, 
employee number one. That's why your advice to not like hassle people too much is good because you want somebody for whom this is a good fit because there's a lot of bad hires for, for first employees that can really mess stuff up if they're oriented a little bit off, especially if they want to be a founder. Nothing's right. worse than having a non-founder who wants to be a founder. Yeah. And, and so when, when, you, when you had those people at Dropbox or when you worked with people in the past, are you just sort of like, hey, you think you want to work at this company, but I know you're going to want to start. Or how, how do you sort of. You know. Well, we mostly like at Dropbox, we mostly just left people alone and threw them on a talent tracker. And we came back to them later when their company was failing. The craziest ones for me were the people who, you know, it'll be like eight years later. I'll see a hacker news post from a person we were recruiting. And they're like, yeah, I talked to those guys back in the day and I was so dumb. I was committed to my company instead of joining Dropbox. And I'm like, yes, that regret. <laughs> you should have come along, Jonathan. But no, it's, um, I don't mean it that way. And he's yeah, been very successful in his career since. So it, I think like one thing I believe about the Valley, which is maybe like a little bit optimistic, too optimistic, but I do think like there's plenty of opportunities Totally. And so just because, like, this isn't the one for that person, they're probably going to find something else. And just because totally. your company is not the one for them, you're going to find somebody else. And I think it, I think it's all good. It kind of works out in the end. Yeah, totally. I want to transition to startup ideas. So I, I've, I've come to you with dozens of ideas over the years. Most of them have been terrible ideas. You've, you've told me so. I've come to you with many dating ideas. <laughs> and you're like, you don't want to do something in dating. You worked at OKQ, but you, you, you know it's a bad market. You, you turn me on to bank shot uh, ideas that you don't want to have those. Why don't you, you, you've had startup ideas of your own. Some of them have been better than others. Why, yeah. why don't you talk, and maybe you're thinking about some right now. Why don't you talk, think about your sort of framework for, or frameworks for, for startup ideas and what you've learned about? Yeah. So I think, um, unfortunately, like a lot of my, a lot of the frameworks I use to evaluate ideas are actually as like an investor. And I think the investor frame is useful in that it, it, helps you kind of think about the, the rough marketability and kind of these rough guides of like how big a market is. But to be honest, I think investors often miss out on some of the like really transformative stuff until later. You know, Airbnb is a great example where that's an idea that a lot of people saw. Like there were no lack of people who had the opportunity to invest in Airbnb early, but because they were looking at it in their investor lens, it was, it was a dumb idea about kids sleeping on mattresses. And I think um, when I have my founder hat on, I try to be a little bit less judgmental. So I try not to bring too many of those frameworks. And one of them, the, that bank shot startup is one that's like a very investory way to think about things, which is like people often are like half ambitious. They're like, I'll do this small thing so I can do this big thing. And I'm like, just do the big thing. Like, don't take the bank shot off the small thing to the big thing. But I don't know. On the other hand, you have Uber, which started with the small thing, which is like limousines and grow into this big thing, which is, I don't know, everything transportation. Um, so I can't hate too much on it. Other than that, it's like a, just a heuristic. I think when, as a person thinking about ideas and when I'm considering them on my own, I start with this, with this totally different frame, which is like, what do I want? And I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. I talk to a lot of people, point blank, who just don't know what they want. Like they kind of have this vague sense they want to be successful they maybe can tell you like some examples of people that they saw before who they like how they were successful or they wish they had a career like that or if they could just find an idea that was sort of like this idea but like when you get down to it deeply and truly like a lot of people don't have a good grounding for like what do you want or like maybe another way of asking is like why do you want like why is it that you are motivated to be an entrepreneur and i think 
that's separate from like, why would you make a good entrepreneur, which is kind of maybe about skills and network and stuff like that. But like, like, what is it that you're trying to get out of this thing? And for myself, I didn't learn a lot about what I wanted until I left Dropbox and was off in the wilderness and had a bunch of bad ideas. And from those bad ideas, I really like honed my sense of the things that I could want. And I learned a lot about who I was. And like, basically what came down to for me are these like three very big buckets. Um, And the names of these buckets change every time I talk about them. But just for quick nicknames uh, right now, like basically competition is a big bucket for me. Uh, Power is a big bucket for me. And then like something like a celebrity or like maybe like acclaim or like fame is the third bucket. And basically like when I got those buckets down, it helped me understand like who I was as an entrepreneur, but also who I wasn't. And the like who I wasn't got rid of so many ideas because I was like, the person who runs this needs to be this way. And I'm not that way. This is probably not the idea for me. And so that's been really big. Just to dig in on those like a little bit, and then I'm super happy to answer more questions. But I think the one that is very straightforward for people is often competition, right? So one version of competition is money, right? So if I have more money than the next guy, I feel like I'm winning. And if that's a type of motivation that works for you, like often those people find their way in finance um, or sometimes on the investing side. But it's also a great thing to be as an entrepreneur, right? Like chasing dollars is really a very reliable way to build a good business. And you can start over here and go over here and go over here. And as long as you're following the money, like actually you're doing a pretty good job through tons and tons of pivots. But I've also seen competition more broadly. It's like the same spirit that drives like a marathoner to try to push for like a lower time or for someone to like study trivia to be like the best at the bar on Tuesday nights, right? It's like this this sort of sense that the way that you win is by in comparison to others is a really, really fascinating driver. And it also happens to not be me. So I look at markets that require competition. So I think Uber is like actually a really, really great one where um, you just have to be ruthlessly competitive to win in in this kind of car share, whatever you want to call that model. It's just like ruthlessly competitive. And I think actually, you know, uh, Travis is a great example of a person who's been very successful along that path. I'm like, man, I don't know. I couldn't do that. Um, and I really like admire people who are, who are great on competitive stuff. Um, power to me is like semi-related, but it's, it's more about like influence and it's more about like getting what you want. And I see it in a bunch of different ways entrepreneurially. So one of those ways is often um, well, I guess I should say the obvious power one is like in politics. So it's like people who want to be governor or, you know, like mayor of San Francisco seems like a wacky job to me. Like who would ever want that? But you have a lot of influence and power and you have a lot of ability to like drive how the world is. And when I meet entrepreneurs, I typically see it around like mission driven companies, right? So you will say, I fundamentally believe that we should see the world in X, Y, Z way. And like the world is not that way yet. And I'm going to make it that way. And the way that that distinguishes from competition really is that power people are working toward an end. And once they get to that end, there's no way to compare it, right? Like, what would it mean to, like, reduce greenhouse emissions by 50%? There's no real competition there. It's like you just see a world that's better and different, and you're driven by that mission. And um, I think those are sometimes really, really great companies because you get these founders who can like basically they start a revolution 
um, I think Elon Musk is very much this way where it's just like, I don't know, man, but for whatever reason, he's like certain we're going to Mars. He's certain we're going to space and, and like, and he's got a company for that. He's certain that we're going to change energy. He's got a company for that. And like his ability to just distill down mission and to change the world. And like, he has a lot of money, but I, I see the, the, the money just passes him by like the same way everything else in life does. It's not on the, this mission path. On the other hand, you know, I also work at a nonprofit and a lot of nonprofit people are mission people too. So we at DevColor are trying to advance the careers of Black software engineers and we do not make money at it. And there are people who might pitch us or we might pitch them that this could be a for-profit, but it's really hard sometimes when you're mission oriented to make money versus like competition people who are like often much better about directing that. So I'm neither of those. So I'm the third one, which sounds bad because it sounds like I'm, I want to be a Kardashian, but I'm like really into fame. And, and fame in this, in this sense, I think, is, is about how you see yourself reflected in other people, basically. And so there's like infamy, which is like you don't mind being hated. And I think there are a lot of people in like politics uh, and Twitter. Twitter is full of people who just love to be hated. Um, and you could build a really great audience as like a as a thought leader and as like a conference speaker and those sorts of things. Um, and that stuff's awesome. Um, I, my version of fame is like a much more personal one. So I care a lot about like interpersonal respect and kind of how I'm known. So, you know, I want to be known as a guy who's like thoughtful. I want to be known as a guy who's like helpful. And I really build, I try to build my reputation like very carefully. And with respect to things that I start, I tend to think about them not from the aim originally of like, I want to change the world or the aim of like, this is going to lead me to like win in some competition, but from the thought of like, what would people see of me if I were to like make this thing successful? And like, what does it say about me that I want to build like X, Y, Z idea? Um, I will say, I think being like that is probably one of the worst ways to be as an entrepreneur. Uh, cause you, cause you've lost both of your big assets of like chasing something that's like, very measurable and you've lost your ability to like inspire in some ways but the type of ideas that end up attracting me are i i would say you know product forward and i think dropbox is a great example so the thing that's awesome about dropbox is like so simple it's amazing that you can build a big business on something that people never really click on and when they do click on it that they can like get so much joy out of it and like being a person who's associated with a product that people get joy out of brings me way more happiness myself than any amount of like equity or like any amount of kind of great business that we've built or anything like that. And I think um, being product oriented in that way where you're like, I want to build something because other people are going to really enjoy it is I think a really pure form of um, entrepreneurialism and a really pure form of being like a builder. Um, and that's really what, what gets me going. So that's a really long ditty, but those buckets are a really big deal to me because I will just see an idea and I'm like, man, if only I were like more mission driven, I think I could sell this, but like, there's not enough product in it for me to be able to, you know, and there's blurry lines and all of these things. Everybody's got a little bit of this inside of themselves. But the reason why I think it's so important, again, going back is because it helps me know like what I want. And once I know what I want, I think this is probably true for everybody in this room. Once you know what you want, it's like way easier to go out and get it. Um, and unfortunately with startup ideas, like you start backwards, you start at the end point and you're like, I don't even know if I want that. Right. Uh, no, much I, less if it's going to work. Totally. Found, founder company fit or founder market fit. I, I, I think it makes, yeah, all, all the, all the difference. 
And I'm curious to dig a little deeper there because you you spent some time in in music, which is a, a passion of yours, um, both at, at a company, Merch Bar, at United Masters, you know, and other sort of ideas you've explored or, or experimented on. How, how do you sort of think about that working uh, in places where you're passionate about? And any lessons from that or any sort of generalizable takeaway? Well, my big lesson is don't work in the music industry. But other than that, I'm actually a fan of people kind of trying to find ways to merge their passion with kind of what they're building. And I think it leads, it often leads to like founder company fit in a, in a really rich way. So for me specifically on music, I'm just a music head. We were talking about music earlier in this conversation. Um, I played instruments as a child and still try to play instruments when I can, excuse me. And I think the music business as an entity was really fascinating to me because I didn't understand how it worked. And so going back way, way back to like <laughs> how I orient my career is around learning. I was like, yeah. this is something new I can learn that's aligned with stuff I think is fun. And I'm going to come out of this experience no matter what, with way better understanding of like how media works, how this other thing works. Yeah. Um, so that part of it was awesome for me. Even to this day, I feel like I can parse certain news about the music industry or certain like things that happen. And I just like, I get it. And like, I can, I, I, it's a party trick. I'll like explain how artists work to people. And they're like, what artists do what they, it's like a very different thing. And it's something cool to like know about that yeah. said as a, as an industry, I think the music, the music world is really tough. I think the first heuristic for why is because it's small. It's just like not the biggest industry in the world. Um, it's billions of dollars, but they flow to like some pretty reliable places. So the amount of money you can really play with as an entrepreneur is relatively small. Um, realistically in a short period of time only like hundreds of millions are at stake um if you get really really far like a spotify like a decade in you start to be able to crack um the billions but not in a necessarily profitable way so small industry and then also in music the thing that sucks is the people are very 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 irrational with respect to money and it makes for tougher conversations when it comes to partnerships because you'll often have a situation where it's like, you can make money on this. And they're like, yeah, but I don't like how I make the money, um, which as an entrepreneur is really hard, even as a, you know, for myself as a person, not super focused on money, but I just need people to be logical. And musicians are often not, uh, or not just musicians, everybody in the industry is often not. But yeah, I mean, I think passion is an awesome way to go. I think it's a, a really, really great way to, someone explained like a, a way to kind of triangulate a good idea. And it's like to get unique expertise, right? To make yourself basically the only person in the world who can do what you do gives you a little bit of a, at least like a mini monopoly yeah. on a thing. And so I guess my aim was in a way to be like the best software engineer in the world who actually understood how artists think. Yeah. And I may or may not have achieved that, but I like feel pretty good about my path to get there. And unfortunately there just wasn't money in that spot in the world. But it wasn't wasted time. And um, I think that's probably like my best pitch for why to go into your passion area is because it's very likely, unless you just have like super, super mainstream tastes, uh, that you won't be competing against very many other people because so many entrepreneurs don't go toward passion. Totally. And even if it didn't work out, like right up in my in instance, you know, the journey was its own reward. Like Totally. Uh, now that's a very privileged thing to be able to say, Eric. And yeah. I, I have to acknowledge it even more so for myself, which is like to go on like a half decade romp in the music industry and not come out with like a great resume is something that I can afford to do because I was like first employee at Dropbox. So I probably wouldn't recommend the path to everybody. 
But if you're in a position where you can um, kind of afford to pursue your passion, even for like a short period of time, I think it can be like really enlightening and it can help you. Like, because I was working on music stuff, it gave me enough of a title, what I was doing to give me the freedom to learn who I was as an entrepreneur. So if you're trying to figure out like which of these buckets or whichever buckets I didn't mention you fall into, at least starting with something you know you like, yeah, you're anchored that way. And is the TLDR that of why you know you wouldn't go into it again, or why it's not that like a business? Is it some hybrid of it's a cartel that you know the old catalogs are owned by very few uh, you know small number of of organizations of labels, and that newer artists who are emerging actually like the way that it's currently run today. They like getting advances, you know, big advances, even if it means giving you know giving up you know most of their your future earnings. Is that what you mean by they don't like how they get paid? Yes. I mean, that's, it's, it's related. So we talked about this a little bit and you had a, like a really great Twitter thread from one of our side conversations about kind of how like you could analogize labels and, and artists to kind of like venture firms and angel investments and things like that. And it's just totally different worlds and it works differently than you would expect. I think, you know, this will maybe like put me in the category with the artists unfairly, but artists very much are similar to me in that they're like interested in fame. And I think like there's just certain things that that money can't buy and that having equity in a company can't get you. And one example is, so there's this guy, Inali Chapa, who I'm sure no one in this room has heard of, but he's a kid who was, um, he's a 16-year-old kid who has one hit song um, and he put it out through United Masters. So United Masters was built as a platform to catch artists early in their career and to try to convert them over to our way of thinking where they own more of their rights and own their business and get to like profit from relationships and partnerships built that way rather than like dump a bunch of money on you all at once and sign away your whole life and now you're on a record deal that you can't get out of and uh, he had a great career at united masters for about six months during which time he talked all over the place about how happy he was to have turned down his like one million dollar offer from record label. And then at the end of the six months, he went and signed to a record label for, I don't know how much, but probably like 2 million. Like it wasn't a huge difference in terms of like the economics, but it was just enough to get him over the line. And he's one of the best examples we had of someone who could succeed without the labels. But to be totally honest, like he's, he's been more successful with the labels than we could have gotten him to because now he's working with companies who their only job is to make him famous. And like, they don't pay him very well for it. Like they pay him pretty well, but but like relative to his talent, if he had st- stuck it out on his own, I'm sure he would be like worth two, five, 20 times as much as he is now. Um, but he would have done it the hard way and had to like do it for himself. And there's like a lot of risk. And so I think the media industry overall is just like a hit space business that doesn't work the same way as tech where the market sorts it all out. Like in media, the, oh, 8 million. There we go. Wow. Well, I mean, that's a lot of, that's more money than, than one for sure. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think like the money aside, I think the ability to work with people who can kind of do everything for you is, is pretty cool. And I think that is something that the analogy in the, in the startup business would be, you go to a firm, say Village Global, and you're like, hey, Eric, I have this great idea. And you're like, dude, this sounds amazing. We'll buy 100% of it. it and that's the end of the conversation. And I think it's like a really fascinating, like it's a it's an interesting counterfactual to how things work now of like, could you could you operate in an industry that way? Effectively, private equity works this way at kind of the like 
more mature stage of companies. And, and I think, you know, there's certain entrepreneurs for whom like that one-time payday are, are great, like kind of opportunity. Yeah. But I think the people in this room are much more interested in building the business. And um, I wish there were more people in the music industry that were oriented that way. And I think they are becoming that. Folks like Chance the Rapper is amazing. Yeah. That dude is just like, and if there's more of him, I think like the whole industry is going to be different. This is where if our more mission oriented founder, I'd be like, I'm in this for the next 20 years to teach artists how to be that. But instead I'm like, I got to get out of here. I'll come back when the artists are different and when the people totally. around them are different. Totally. Totally. Another, you know, thing that a lot of on deck people are, are thinking about. So one was startup idea. The other is, is co-founder. And, and of course those, you know, inter intersect. Some people are better co-founder ideas for better for certain ideas than others. But what frameworks have you picked up or, 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 or in sort of how you'd potentially think about getting a co-founder or how you'd advise to others to think about a co-founder or how you evaluate from an investor evaluating a you know co-founding team? Yeah, so I have like the worst personal experiences around co-founders because I don't think I have an example personally where I'm like, oh yeah, this process made sense and the result made sense. Um, they're all like very disconnected. So that's a lesson in and of itself is like, I don't know. But like Drew and Arash met and two weeks later, they were co-founders because wow. Drew needed a founder, a co-founder to go through YC. Like YC at the time was like, you must have a co-founder. Drew was like, I think I could do this by myself, which is probably true. But he got a rush. And then like, it turns out they were perfectly paired. And I don't know like what their conversations were like and how they figured that out or if they figured that, that out. But they like complemented each other in like so many dimensions in so many useful ways for Dropbox there's no way that company gets built the way it gets built to the level that it did without them as a founding team. So I'm glad like YC pushed them to be a co-founder, but like I would never recommend that process to someone like add someone just to get into YC is crazy. Don't do it. Like <laughs> I have also seen that fail 10, 10 times as many times as I've seen it succeed, you know? And I think like for myself as I've shopped around for co-founders, so I did the single founder thing for a while and you have as well. I mean, I think it's something that's like pretty natural for folks who have a lot of different types of talent um, is that like, hey, I could do it by myself and I think it works all right. But emotionally, it's like a bit of a journey. And also it is nice to have other hands. And often those people can compliment you and do the stuff you suck at, which is great. And they'll do it for free, which is even greater. But I think my kind of whole founder search has been stunted by the fact that the ideas that I like looked for a, a co-founder on were not ideas that I had like so much conviction on. And so they didn't really go anywhere. So my stuff is not super great there. And then um, United Masters has a really fascinating situation because it has co-founder kind of ish situations, but like really the founder is Steve Stout and um, everybody else is like, it's, you know, he's the center of the constellation. Um, so like the vibe is different. So anyway, I, my personal experience, unfortunately, not so great around co-founders, but as an investor, I see them lots and I see, um, different types of teams all the time. I actually think co-founders, when I'm looking at teams, I'm like very excited to see good co-founder pairings. Often it is about complementarity. So I'm like, how could I, I don't know how you can engineer it, but how can I identify it? A team that's like Drew and Arash, where you look at it and you're like, I know all the problems they're going to run into. And I see between the two of these people exactly how they're going to split them up. Like, I already know, like, they don't have to really tell me. I like, when this problem comes up, that's an Arash problem. When this problem comes up, this is a Drew problem. And like, I can't think of any problems they can't solve separately. Those are awesome. And um, I love those. The only other example I would kind of call out, because it's wacky in its own way, is 
the Justin TV founding team was four people. So um, you have Justin, who is named after. You have Michael, who's basically, he was the manager, CEO guy, relationships guy. You have Kyle, who's just like a techie who knows hardware, maybe. And then you have Emmett, who's even more of a techie and doesn't want to talk to anybody. And then if you run the story out of those four, actually it's totally flipped from who you think would like be most successful. Emmett is the only person, or sorry, no, that's not true. Uh, Kyle's the only person running an independent company right now. Um, and he, no, he's not independent either. Sorry, nobody's independent. Okay, I'll back that part up. Point is all four of them ended up great, but Kyle and Emmett, the two people who seem least likely to be CEO, ended up being CEOs of um, Cruise and of Twitch respectively. Michael Seibel's now running Y Combinator. Justin Khan just came off of running Atrium. They all have been in, in incredibly successful because they're just like a power pack founding team. And it wasn't like their original idea was a reality TV show run off a of camera of uh, on top of Justin's head. Like that was just a broken business. Like their skills were irrelevant, but that team as a combination, as you looked at them, you're like, there's no problem in the world that has something to do with tech that they can't attack. Yeah. And um, I'm always looking out for teams like that too. So like the rare company where it's like, I don't really like the idea, but like these guys, yeah. Like something's or girls, you know, they, yeah. like there's something with this team and they're like going to figure it out. And um, I think if you're trying to think of how you build your founding team, it's like kind of Swiss army knife or like very complimentary skill set is how I would say it. Yeah. But just that story alone is so crazy and how they all, you know, went out their different ways. And um, I could imagine like a sitcom just based on that, that experience. I mean, it's, I'm sure it, they're working on the movie. That's yeah. probably what Justin's working on right now. He's got yeah. screenplay going. It totally. Yeah, did you, I mean, a, a lot of what people are, you know, working on now and, and on deck is, you know, they maybe have their idea, they're maybe sort of founder dating, or they're sort of idea dating. And they're thinking, like, how long do I push, explore this idea before I sort of give up on it? You know, do I, how do I think about pivoting? Do I explore two ideas in parallel? What, what's your sort of take on sort of, you know, that sort of, you know, idea dating phase, or when you're really exploring yeah. something and how to assess whether like, is there something here? Yeah, I mean, I think, it takes discipline for sure to, to say you're done with an idea. So I actually want to really quick, I'll just turn the question around to you. How'd you know when to be done with wrapped? <laughs> you know, it's a good question. I knew when to be done with wrapped when my co-founder quit and we ran out of money. <laughs> uh, that, that's when I knew, I mean, I, I, um, or I shouldn't say we ran out of money cause we had this nice lifestyle business, uh, teaching, uh, quick and loans and other companies how to freestyle wrapped, which, which, paid the bills, but we probably weren't going to raise venture. Uh, the, the real answer is I lost conviction that this could be really big. Like I, for three years, I maintained like, no, this could, this could really work. If we just, you know, uh, we're able to get more money, get more team, but you know, more time, it could really work. And I think, uh, lost conviction that like it was automatic that this was going to work. But then also I lost conviction that I was, that this is the unique thing that I was sort of like set, set to do. I'd sort of like, hit my head against the wall enough times. I was like, okay, uh, I'll yeah. stop. And I, you know, I remember Mark going to Mark Echo's office. Mark Echo is a sort of legendary, like fashion designer, hip hop, hip hop sort of, you know, cultural, pretty invented complex. And this was like three years in, so I'm near the end. And I was like, I'm gonna build this sort of, you know, like hip hop digital community and ecosystem. And this is what I you know, set out to do. And then, you know, we started talking. He's like, are you, are you sure like out of all the things you could be doing, this is the like best thing you could be doing. And I was like, yes. And then he's like, are you sure? And I was like, 
yes. And he's like, are you sure? And I was like, you know what, man? I don't know, dude. <laughs> and, and he kept saying, like, hey, you should be doing all, all this other type of stuff. And I, like, I'd, because I was in San Francisco for 500 startups, I was in Detroit previously, I'd seen all these other startups that were just getting more traction. <laughs> and and it just looked more fun. And I was like, maybe maybe this isn't the only thing I could be doing. So it's so a combination of, of, of those factors. Totally. And I think that last part is probably where my advice comes from, which is, if you know like what success looks like, you can definitely tell what non-success looks like. It's actually probably the greatest curse from my Dropbox time, but a blessing, which is I really know what it looks like when a thing is working. And yeah. so for me, I can like work on an idea. I'm like, nope, this isn't it. And I think if you're like a first time founder, especially, in, and even if you have started things before, or if you've like worked at places before, but you haven't seen like that crazy takeoff, of, a, of like kind of one of these unicorn companies, you might not be able to feel it. And so like, I guess so, somewhat the advice is like, that's where being an early employee is really, really valuable. It's like, okay. once you go through product hunt and it's like a meta learning there because you get to see other companies on their takeoff, but you're like, okay, this thing I'm working on is not shaped like those other things. <laughs> so I need to change something. I like need to change how I'm approaching it or I need to do another idea. Um, and I think the discipline is, is, is that related to that emotional part of like, this is not working. Am I doing it just because I've defined myself as this is my job, this is what I do, or am I doing it because I actually do believe this is going to work? And I don't know, that's a fine line. I do mm -hmm. think serially is better than parallel. And I, I think that's, it's maybe like a little over pivot based on kind of how people think about Silicon Valley um, projects. But if you are working on like multiple things, I think you're probably not actually succeeding on any of them by the metrics that like a venture capitalist would care about. I, I, I can't even, I don't know if I've ever met a founder who's like really killing it metrics wise and they're working on something else. Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, there's ways to parallelize and then like drop the other stuff once you're done. But um, you know, the person I think was really best at like this idea or exploration I've seen is, is Roger Dickey. And he, has a system about it and they just like hit them they hit their ideas hard for very short periods of time serially and uh and i think the the serial approach is really good because in addition to keeping you focused it also makes you make that hard call about like what's valuable or not and helps you be able to frame that idea of like could there be something else it's like one of the other things i haven't gotten to try yet as opposed to well you know 20 percent of my time i'm here 20 percent of my time i'm here I think that works better when you're kind of consulting is sure like lifestyle business where it's like, yes, I can do that as a sideline, but like the thing I'm working on is this. And then maybe in two months it won't be. And I think that's fine. I think another thing I'd add to your sort of framework, which I really like um, when you're talking about knowing yourself in the three different buckets is um, like knowing who you want to serve as a customer base or, or like who you're best fit to serve. And I think one thing I learned is I think entrepreneurs are, are the people that I have I'm best fit to serve or most interested in serving in, in that sort of like business relationship way. Whereas artists, for example, I just, I'm not an artist myself. I, I just didn't have sort of unfair advantage in, in, in serving artists and, and, and maybe some group, uh, I had a lot of you know, artist friends or I, I wanted to be there, but I, I didn't have that same advantage. So I, I think that's another lens of, of looking at it. Yeah. That's actually a really fun way to build a business is to start with the customers and very few yeah. people do. So I wish more people did that. Yeah, Totally. Just um, sort of looking forward, uh, in turn, and you don't have to, you know, give anything away too much. And obviously, you're, you're focused in your, you know, executive director role. But uh, to the extent that you choose to start something in the future, how do you plan to apply these to um, how you're thinking about 
what broad space you, you might want to spend time on. Totally. So you mentioned earlier, I, I went through ODF. So it, there was a period of time kind of as I was coming into this job or the, right before where I was like actually still very actively working on a startup idea. And so I was at the very early stages of that. And what I did was uh, I picked a space. So I was really like into time management and calendaring and meetings and scheduling and all that stuff. And I was working on co-founders where I was trying to do that thing I just described earlier, which is I have the, like this talent tracker people that I would love to work with, who I think would compliment me on some specific areas and trying to like triangulate between things that I thought would be cool products and people who I would want to work with and like a reasonable market. Um, and I just didn't get very far along that, that road. I'm probably a little bit more academic about my search than most people. Um, and I had plans to take some of my concepts and like actually put them to market with some MVPs and things like that, but I just never got to it. So I don't know. I think starting a company is like, there's so many things to do and so many bits and pieces that you try to get right all at once. So for me, it's kind of that sequence that I said of like space and and the person I want to work with or the people I want to work with, and then starting to do those early explorations and, and really see if there's something there. And yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, um, it's one of those things I'm going to feel out. I also just total, like full disclosure, I'm going to take a little bit of a break. So <laughs> I went job to job to job, yeah. took a tiny break and then into a job. And so I think like that break is also something that we didn't talk about at all, but it's nice to like, you know, uh, refill your, I don't know, reserves, juices, yeah. but whatever your favorite metaphor is for the, for the fuel that, that drives like your entrepreneurial effort. Uh-huh. And so I'm looking forward to that first and foremost. Love it. And, and my, my, my quick, my, my quick TLDR on the break stuff, if, if you're lucky to be able to, to, to do so is um, to, especially if you're coming out something really intense is to like take time off until you're so bored and time off. I pursue anything you want to go. I went to Columbia for, for a month and a half. I thought it was going to be for three months, but I just got, I was just so eager to, to come back um, that, that you, cause you're going to need that energy replenished. And so if you like wait until you're so bored and then a little bit extra, it, it might be a, you know, a good head start. Totally. Uh, unfortunately, you know, not everybody gets to travel these days. Yes. Uh, so, you know, that one's strike, strike that one off the yeah. list, but I have some other stuff to do on my break. So I'm Amazing. looking forward. And I think like the, the closing thought I would say is, I have decided like separate from this buckets thing that I'm like a person who's going to be like an entrepreneur for life. And so I try not to get like too hung up on like this particular go round of it. Um, trying to be like really opt- uh, opportunistic and, and looking for like what might be a good fit, what might not, and like figure it out from there. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's helping me relax into this break and not have it be a break. That's like, well, if I don't come out of this with the idea, like totally I failed. So, yeah. Well, that's a great place to, to wrap on. Uh, cheers to that. Aston, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us. Uh, we're, we're all really grateful. Uh, it, lastly, just, you know, I want to ask you, how, how can On Deck um, uh, support the work that you're doing at, at DevColor or, or people here who, who want to get involved or want to support or, or what more can you, can you say about that? Oh, yeah, totally. So uh, DevColor is a 501c3. So you guys can feel free to uh, make any tax deductible donations you like. We will not turn them away. But yeah, I mean, more broadly, our our mission is around accelerating the careers of black software engineers. So first off, if you're interested in that mission, um, you can head by the website and and learn a little bit more about our programs. Right now, we just opened up our application process for the 2021 class of DevColor members. And uh, 
I've been a member for five years. It's a pretty good program. I like it. I'm biased, but it's, it's good. And so if you know Black software engineers, um, particularly in our four chapter cities, San Francisco, Atlanta, uh, Seattle, and New York, uh, please encourage them to apply because I think the program will add a lot to, to them and to their, to their future success. That's awesome. Asta, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and speaking to some On Deck fellows. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.